This week on Outspoken, we're talking about ethics in sport. What is their place? Do they have a place? Who establishes them? And how are they upheld? We look at the case study of Gianni Moscon and talk with esteemed scholar and head of the groundbreaking Sports Governance Centre at CU Colorado, Dr. Roger Pelkey. Howdy and welcome to the Thereabouts Outspoken podcast. We have a brilliant show for you today. My name is Angus Morton and today, as I was last week and the week before that, I am joined by Isaac Carson. G'day Isaac, how are you doing buddy? I'm doing well, just another week here in lockdown and it has us thinking about rules because we're all abiding by them at the moment. Uh, staying inside and social distancing and really has us thinking about who makes the rules. When do we listen to them and how do they all get created? That's exactly right, uh, Isaac. So this week on Outspoken, we are taking a look at ethics and the rules and norms in sport to get a better understanding of how they're established, upheld, and how what's deemed acceptable varies from sport to sport and evolves over time. We look at a specific case study from modern professional cycling as a way to break down how an ethical standard is developed within a sport, the difference between rules and norms, and how they interact, as well as the rule of governing bodies, the teams, athletes, and fans, in developing and upholding these standards. Is performance more important than social values? At what point does a wrong become a rule? What are the repercussions for socially inappropriate behavior and who should uphold those? Today, we want to get a clear image surrounding the role of ethics in sport. And so we reached out to someone who has spent his life working at the intersection of science, governance, climate, and sport. He set up and ran the Sports Governance Center at Boulder's CU College and continues to examine the misuse of science in sport dismantling the wall between sport and academia. His name is Dr. Roger Pelkey. Welcome to the show, Roger. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Well, as can be expected in these circumstances, uh, healthy and at home. So that's good. Yeah, that uh, they are certainly extraordinary circumstances. And I think everyone's, you know, doing their best to cope. Before we uh Jump in. Do you mind giving me a bit of a rundown of what you do at the Sports Governance Center at CU Boulder? Yeah, so I'm a professor who studies uh, mainly the use and misuse of science in, in policy. Um, and it's been a while ago, about 2011, we had this crazy idea to create an academic unit inside an athletic department. So the Sports Governance Center, um, which existed from 2000. Uh, 16 through 2019 um, was an mm-hmm. effort to build the first academic center in a Division One U.S. college um, athletic department, um, and it was uh, it, it's it, it no longer exists. It didn't mm-hmm. survive, but um, we had some good classes and done a lot of research on things like doping in sport. Um, I spent a lot of time on the Castor Semenya sex testing issue um, and other various forms of cheating, rule breaking, and so on. And so I'm, I'm interested to hear before, um, like we jump into the sporting side of things, like how did you arrive and how did you arrive at setting up the Center for Sports Governments? I know that like, you know, 
like a long time ago, you 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 was in uh, studying at the National uh, Center for Atmospheric Research. Yeah, my my expertise is really in how decision makers use and often misuse and abuse science and decision making. Mm -hmm. um, and it, there's really two threads that that got me into this area. One was in teaching, uh, particularly graduate students. Um, you know, they come in and they know they think they know everything about environmental policy, climate change, things like that. And just looking for case studies where science is being used and misused, um, where they didn't have strong preconceptions. And it turns out sports offers a wonderful set of case studies. I first started with the uh, Oscar Pistorius issue um, yep. of whether he should be allowed to run with uh, able-bodied athletes and also the Castor Semenya issue more than a decade ago. And students really, really like those. The second thread was really um, the fact that, um, you know, I'm at a big university. We have what is in effect a, a professional sports program under mm -hmm. the wings of the university and we don't talk about it much on campus um, there's a big wall between athletics and academics and i thought you know it's part of my professional responsibility to take a look at that um, and see if we can break that down a bit um, and so those two things led to creating an institution inside the athletic department focused on um, what are really messy difficult challenging questions today i want to speak specifically about a case involving uh, a cyclist Gianni Moscon and the kind of bigger conversation that those incidents has sparked or I feel there is the need to, to have within cycling which is to do with um, the intersection of sport and ethics but before I go there you just mentioned that you did a lot of work or like you you, you um, did a lot of research on the Casta Semenya case then I'm just intrigued to hear your thoughts on how sports evolve and how they're I guess, like, how should a sport go about establishing guidelines for the treatment of athletes, um, and how do they evolve? Yeah, I mean, that's a great. I mean, that's a great question. That's really at the center of a lot of issues and yeah. across sport right now with athlete rights and athletes asserting themselves. Um, and I guess that I mean something that I, I always tell people that's kind of hard to believe is that that many sports organizations um, are, are are unique. They're kind of weird. They're not governmental. They're not private sector and they're not nonprofits. Um, they're um, entities to themselves and it, particularly internationally, they claim uh, autonomy of governance, which, um, you know, a cynical interpretation means they can do whatever the hell they want to do. Mm. Um, less cynically, it means that sports organizations should be allowed to run their own business. And when they, they do it and things work, it, everything works well. But when there's disputes or conflicts, um, it becomes difficult because there is no, usually there's no appeal to a higher body, um, to, you know, to governments, to sponsors, uh, or even to the athletes because the athletes don't have a big say. So sports organizations have enormous latitude in how they um, govern their athletes. So we see big differences uh, within nations and across nations um, and across international federations in how they actually um, interact with athletes and, and do their business. And like how then, so to that point, right, like cycling is an extremely international sport and you have teams that are made up of, you know, sometimes like, you know, yeah, like like five, six, ten different nations um, are present within one, you know, 30 athlete roster. How, like, I guess what is the role of the governing body, the teams in establishing like a code of ethics and in, in within within that sport like what cultural political and religious considerations should be taken in into account 
and 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 then sort of by extension of that like is that something that needs to be established is within a sport or is it something that should just be considered um not the not to not have a place within sport yeah so i mean it's a great question and it gets to a lot of the core of the issues of, of disputes we see in in sport mm. but i mean it's important to understand and everybody knows this for you know whatever sport they're most familiar with um sport has rules so these are things we write down and we follow um but just as important and maybe more important are norms and these are these are rules that we follow that we don't write down these are just expected patterns of behavior mm-hmm. um and you know one of the things is particularly cycling you know what we hear about um if you go back to you know, the doping controversies um, and, you know, people who will say, yeah, but the, it was expected. Everybody doped and it was it was part of the sport. Um, and that's invoking a norm. So that's saying, you know, it's, it was against the written rules, but the unwritten rules, it was OK. Um, we see yeah. that in, you know, in, in American baseball. We see that elsewhere where where, you know, what might be considered cheating in another context is considered OK because it's part of the norms of the sport. So really to understand, you know, what role a governing body should have, I mean, you have to understand that, that the, the, the role of the governing body is to both enforce rules, but also to understand norms um, and when it's appropriate to take a norm and turn it into a rule, if that makes sense. And, you know, to make it yeah, more yeah. formalized. Let's look at, for example, Gianni Moscon. Uh, he, here we have an athlete in the sport who's an anomaly in the sense that, like, he – you know, uh, several years ago, openly racially abused uh, another athlete. In this situation, like, how do we how do we make something that's considered the norm into a rule? Yeah. So, I mean, this is um, if you take a look across the sport lands. First, the bigger picture. So, if this is mm-hmm. the the you know the U.S. National Hockey League, um, you know, physical yeah. violence against your opponent is um, it's part of the culture of the sport, part yes. of the norm. Baseball, you have bench clearing brawls. Um, but if that were to happen on a tennis court or a golf course, um, we'd all think that's pretty ridiculous. That's, 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 that's not how it occurs. Exactly. So really, each sport has to decide. Um, and, you know, often it's 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 the athletes, um, you know, it's, it's their place of work and they have to put they're the ones that can affect change um, probably most quickly and most readily um, if they organize and if they speak with one voice. Um, in my book, I talk about uh, the case of Victoria Azarenka uh, in mm-hmm. the in the Australian Open, and she used an uh, she lost her composure. She was about to lose, um, and she took an, a ten minute injury timeout. She wasn't injured, but she yeah. got her compo- composure back and um, came back and won. And there was a lot of outcry, a lot of debate. You know, was that appropriate? Should the rules be changed and so on? Um, and these situations um, where an athlete does something that runs up against rules or norms or both um they lead to these questions but if if there's not pressure for change then there's there's two two answers we could have one is that the you know the system isn't responsive or that the pressures aren't sufficient to cause that change so everybody's you know in general happy with the status quo um so it, this these these situations occur all the time um there's another example i use of uh, a champions league soccer match um, and in soccer, when somebody gets injured, they, they kick the ball out of bounds. And the, the norm, the courtesy is to, is to throw in the ball and throw it back to the other team. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it turns out um, 
I think it was a team from Denmark um, playing a team from Spain. Um, when the, on the restart, they threw the ball back towards the other goalie and the team that threw in the ball intercepted it, went and scored a goal. And which is, a, you know, it didn't break any rules, but it was a gross violation of norms. Um, and UEFA, which governs soccer, uh, changed the rules after that okay. to make that a penalty. So I think in these situations, um, it, it's really important to see what the people who um, whose workplace it is, um, how they respond. And it's it's what we've seen, I think, in a lot of cases. Um, sponsors very rarely are, are out in front. Um, governments don't exhibit much pressure. And um, the leaders of sports organizations um, often aren't the first ones to try to, to uh, implement these sort of changes. And in a sport, um, that's really interesting, like in a sport like cycling that's, that, that, that um, has struggled to organize from an athlete's perspective um, and, and certainly in a way that, that, that exerts any kind of influence over the sport, is like, does that sort of thing, is there a position for an athlete, like athletes as individuals to start standing up and using their platform to make a point about this or like, is there a place for the fans to start standing up? Like, is that something that you've seen in the past has elicited change or is, is a pathway to exert influence? Yeah, I mean, so, so from what I understand, I mean, cycling is a bit like track and field and other sports mm -hmm. where um, it's, it's both individualistic, but it's also team. Um, and the nature of kind of atomizing the athletes into different teams that compete against each other creates, uh, I think, understandable incentives against a larger scale organization forming a union or something like that. Um, but in the sports where the athletes are well organized, so look at golf, look at yep. tennis, um, look at the professional sports uh, in the United States, um, athletes wield enormous influence. Yep. Um, and I know there's been a number of efforts to try to organize the cycling community. Um, but I mean, the, the story of um, particularly international sport is um, so far, at least, um, untapped potential um, of the enormous power that uh, organized athletes would have. Um, and I think things are moving in that direction. Um, the fans, um, you know, the fans don't seem to have a lot of influence. I mean, it really takes something. If you look at like, um, you know, Lance Armstrong or Tiger yeah. Woods or Maria Sharapova, um, you know, the line that an athlete has to be perceived to cross before sponsors get worried about their customers who are fans of the sport um, is really a pretty high bar, it seems, um, in most cases. So, okay. So, the role of the athlete within society it's changing, I feel like, especially like in a time like right now, right, where they they exert a lot of social influence, um, and a lot of people do look to them as role models. Maybe is that is that something that the public is maybe going too far down that line? And we look at a guy like Moscon, you know, obviously we do not want him as a role model for like I certainly wouldn't want him for a role model for my kids. How do we talk about that, and how how do we I guess outline the role of the athlete? in sport, uh, in, in society more generally? Yeah, there's some issues. I mean, so if you take um, like racial abuse, which mm -hmm. I think there's a really strong consensus um, across sporting bodies, across society, that that's just yeah. not, not acceptable. That's the sort of thing where um, 
we've seen, particularly like in international soccer, that pressure that's exerted um, on teams and on leagues um, actually has an effect. Um, I think that's a very different story than somebody picking up a bike and clocking somebody in the back of the head with it. Um, yeah, totally. Which seems like it's, it's much more, you know, an internal dispute to the sport and, you know, one which, you know, leaders in the community have to decide, is this something we're going to stand up for that we, ex that we accept? Um, and, you know, what we're doing right now is an important part of that is talking about it and asking the question, is this acceptable? I mean, the, wor the worst thing that happens is we have these situations and nobody talks about it. Nobody says, oh, this is unacceptable or not normal. And it becomes rationalized as part of the sport and yeah. um, everybody else who participates in that. Like you say, you know, kids see this and they think, all right, that's acceptable. That's 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 what I do. Um, you know, I mean, if you look at tennis and a whole generation of youth came up looking at, uh, you know, Vita Scarolitis and John McEnroe yeah. screaming at referees um, and that became part of the norm of the sport. So. I think it's really important to understand that that what we accept and what we don't challenge, um, you know, gets folded into and mixed in with the norms that we have and become the norms of the future. And I guess tennis is a good example of a sport that those norms have progressed and changed, right? You look at how a, a player like Nick Kyrgios is, is um, quite heavily like reprimanded and also kind of the way that society views him. Um, and he's very outspoken, right? He's gotten in a lot of trouble for for acting, you know, probably in a similar way to the way that that McEnroe did, you know, in, during his career. Right. Even even a shadow of, of what we saw before, or even like you know yeah. Serena Williams when she's she's you know had a few breakdowns on court. The 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 way that we treat and look at tennis athletes is is far different than it was you know a couple generations ago. Um, and I think you see that across sport generally. I mean, you look at. Um, you know, NFL football in the U.S., um, you know, the, the degree of violence that once was, you know, celebrated is, is now, um, you know, on-field violence is, is, yeah. is now um, sanctioned even. So, you know, norms and, and things do change, but, you know, paying attention to how that change occurs is, is essential. I mean, it's the same with cycling and doping. Um, exactly. I'm sure there's a, there's a fair amount that still goes on, but it's, it's not the Wild West like it, it used to be. And, and that reflects uh, a change in the culture. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right there. I think um, like the, the issues with Team Sky and the Jiffy Bag and also the Salbutamol case with um, Chris Froome, like are examples of those became, you know, national inquiries and those were, you know, really played out publicly and, 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 received a lot of scorn whereas once upon a time those were the sort of things that just were dealt with and, and disappeared like not that long ago and I have I have one more question before um, we let you go and I appreciate you giving your time this is sort of a little bit more more broad and this is something I'm interested in given um, I guess you know these these existential kind of crises that that you know we all face and are thinking about and are being spoken about things like climate change obviously like the the pandemic that's going on right now and I just wanted to, and I, you've worked in quite a wide range of, of science and sport and, and that seen the intersection between, you know, politics and sport and, and climate and things like that. What, in your opinion, is the position of the athlete um, when it comes to, about, comes to speaking out about issues that confront us all? Um, is there a place for that type of, you know, activism, I guess, athlete activism within sport? Um, or do you think that there's potentially a more... Um, effective like you know channel that, that that these athletes can sort of 
put their energy towards if they feel strongly about an issue like climate change? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, and it's not unique to, to athletes. Um, and, you know, right. athletes have a unique sort of power, particularly um, if they're well-known. And, and, and it's, it's challenging because, um, you know, it, it, we often hear stick to sports, right? So LeBron James comes out and mm. says something about, um, you know, I can't breathe, T-shirt. Um, and I think it's really important. I mean, athletes are citizens, too, so they have every right um, to be as vocal on topics that they want to be. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's also important to understand that um, there are, you can be more or less effective um, in these roles. And, um, you know, particularly, you know, top athletes have um, very high paid public relations people to advise them, but not all athletes do. Um, and you can imagine if every athlete came out and, um, said, uh, here's who I'm going to vote for. Here's who you should vote for. Here's the th what I believe in. Um, it probably wouldn't be particularly effective. It might politicize yeah. sport. Um, if we look at Colin Kaepernick, I mean, he was enormously effective in many respects in, in raising the issues, um, of race and discrimination. Um, but at the same time, he became also an object of propaganda for Donald Trump. Um, and you can argue that, totally. uh, that, that that situation probably, um, you know, it is either a draw or Trump won that one. Um, yeah. So, so I think athletes, um, you know, one of the things we can do as you know, people who are, are experts in, in public policy issues and political issues um, is help athletes to understand um, what it means to be effective, more or less effective. And it's yeah. not just PR. It's one thing to maintain your um, ability to not offend sponsors, but it's another thing to actually constructively engage in um, a public debate. And I'll give you an example of a great success. I think the women's, U.S. women's national soccer team, um, including Hope Solo and the current players, have been enormously effective in their um, equal pay campaign which on one level, it's about them and their workplace, but on another level, it's about um, equality across society. And if you compare how they have, you know, wielded that campaign versus how the U.S. Soccer Federation has, I mean, clearly the athletes have um, have come out on top in that case, at least in the, a political policy sense, um, you know, versus just a, you know, a PR sense. Mate, I really appreciate your time today. Um, I do want to say the book you mentioned earlier on, is that The Edge, The War Against Cheating and Corruption in Cutthroat World of Elite Sports? It is indeed. Excellent. Um, so yeah, just for our listeners, if you want to um, just dig into that a little bit, uh, that is the book. Hopefully, we might be, get the opportunity uh, as you know the world of sport opens back up in the next few months you know, to get your expert opinion on, on how this new world of sport is shaping. I loved it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Take care, mate. And that just about does it. Thank you so much for listening to the third episode of the Thereabouts Outspoken podcast. It's been a real hoot. Uh, we've got more episodes coming down over the next week, uh, next few weeks. And yeah, so make sure you keep your ears to the ground for those. And again, Make sure you, uh, now that you've got a bit of an understanding of how rules and norms and uh, ethics are developed, 
make sure you uh, you know do the right thing out there as as we continue this extended 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 lockdown and just remember that uh, the world coming out of this place is going to be much better and it's up to us to you know grab that by the uh, grab that by the horn so thank you very much in the meantime make sure you subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple podcasts and keep the questions coming it's been really nice to get uh, positive feedback on everything and um, yeah definitely keep sending your support send any questions recommendations or just general comments to our email howdy at thereabouts.co or hit us up on Instagram at here or thereabouts thanks for listening I'm Isaac Carson. And I'm Angus Morton. Take it easy, everyone. Cool. Nice. Sweet. Nice. Real, real nice. Cool. Okay, let's pop there.